Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of gun violence, assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Shortly after 6 p.m. on February 24, 1986, 26-year-old John Rutten pulled up to his apartment in Van Nuys. Oddly, the garage door was already open. Even more strange, his wife Sherry's BMW wasn't there, but pieces of glass littered the ground. Then, as he climbed the stairs up to his place, he realized the door to his home was ajar. Worry washed over John. All signs pointed to a break-in. But if that was the case, John wondered, why hadn't the burglar alarm gone off? Perhaps he'd forgotten to set it. When he stepped into the apartment, all was quiet. Then John saw the unthinkable. His wife, 29-year-old Sherry Rasmussen, lay on their living room floor, wearing underwear, a camisole, and a robe. And she didn't appear to be breathing. He reached for her leg, desperate for any sign of life, but Sherry's body was already cold. In a panic, John ran to the phone and dialed 911. He and Sherry were still newlyweds, and John now had to swallow a heartbreaking truth. His wife was dead. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. This is our second episode on convicted murderer Stephanie Lazarus, a scorned LAPD officer who in 1986 battered and shot the wife of the man she loved. Last week, we discussed Stephanie's rocky upbringing, her complicated relationship with John Rutten, and her mental decline after learning he was engaged to Sherry Rasmussen. This week, we'll take you through Sherry's tragic murder and the failed investigation that followed. Finally, we'll detail the clues that led to LAPD's shocking revelation a whole two decades later. One among them was a murderer. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? 
Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. On December 20th, 1985, 25-year-old Stephanie Lazarus drafted a personal ad for the newspaper in her journal. She wrote, 25-year-old UCLA grad, very athletic, loves to travel, seeks tall athletic male, 21 to 31, who likes to travel and has a good sense of humor. But Stephanie never actually made the listing public and her loneliness persisted. In another journal entry from this time, she wrote, All I can say is that I'm glad I won't be working nights for a while. I really need to improve my social life before I go crazy. She was still heartbroken that the man of her dreams, John Rutten, had married Sherry Rasmussen, a fact Stephanie simply couldn't accept. Throughout December 1985, Stephanie grew agitated, needing something to distract her from the reality that she'd never marry John Rutten. But her work wasn't exactly a positive diversion. On December 27, 1985, 25-year-old Stephanie was reprimanded by one of her superiors at LAPD, Captain Stevens. She'd made an error by arresting minors without getting statements from them. When the captain tried to issue her an official notice to correct, Stephanie wrote him off as a lunatic rather than admit she was wrong. Although the write-up on her misconduct was never submitted, the altercation struck a personal chord in Stephanie. Before we continue with Stephanie's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In 1992, criminologist Robert Agnew introduced general strain theory, a development of prior strain theories which link stressors with negative emotions that lead to crime and violence. The two primary contributing feelings Agnew cites are anger and frustration. And it's likely that Stephanie's job was a source of both. A 2017 survey conducted by Pew Research Center found that 22% of officers say their job often makes them feel angry, and 51% say it often or always makes them feel frustrated. This assessment indicates that exposure to the dark side of law enforcement and high-pressure situations comes at an emotional cost. So Stephanie was not unique in being affected by the stress of her career. Years of pent-up grievances had primed her for a violent outburst. Her reprimanding from the captain was simply the final straw. In the weeks following, Stephanie repeatedly showed up at John Rutten and Sherry Rasmussen's condo uninvited. It was a way to assert herself, to regain a sense of control she'd lost at the police force after she was dressed down. 
When John opened the door, Stephanie held up a pair of snow skis, telling him that she'd like them waxed. The odd and sudden gesture bothered Sherry, who hadn't seen Stephanie since she'd threatened Sherry at her job months earlier. Now, six months later, Stephanie bluntly ignored the invisible boundary line that had been drawn between them. And though Sherry asked her husband not to tend to Stephanie's sports gear, he did anyway. According to Matthew McGough's book about the case, The Lazarus Files, John claimed the favor would take care of her, but it didn't. Weeks later, 29-year-old Sherry Rasmussen sat home alone while John was at work. All morning, she'd worked on a development lecture for her nursing staff. Then, at 10 a.m., she took a break. She stood up from her papers and padded across her bedroom, heading down to her apartment's first floor. Sherry assumed she was home alone. But at the bottom of the stairs, Sherry stopped dead in her tracks. Standing in the middle of the living room was none other than John's ex, 25-year-old Stephanie Lazarus. Stephanie turned and said casually, I'm here to see John. On duty that day, she wore her police uniform, flaunting her professional authority. Stephanie was also likely armed with a gun. Sherry stared in disbelief, outraged that Stephanie had the audacity to just waltz into their home unannounced. As the two faced one another on the first floor of the apartment, the tension between them rose. Their love triangle had spawned anger in both of them, but Stephanie in particular wanted vengeance. For a moment, it seemed a fight might break out. Instead, Sherry demanded that Stephanie get out, telling her not to come by for John ever again. Sure enough, Stephanie conceded. She sauntered to the door with an arrogance that made Sherry uneasy. After Stephanie left, Sherry couldn't help but feel stuck. If she told the police she was being harassed by an officer, they might not believe her, and it could further provoke Stephanie. If she took the issue to John, he might think Sherry didn't trust him. Conflicted, Sherry confided in her parents over a phone call that evening. Sherry's parents couldn't offer much help. They didn't understand why John couldn't just tell Stephanie to stop coming over. So, trapped by her circumstances, Sherry did nothing. A choice that would seal her fate. Meanwhile, Stephanie seemed alarmingly indifferent to the violence she witnessed on her daily shifts. In one journal entry from that time period, 25-year-old Stephanie wrote of a hanging suicide victim and a cinnamon roll she enjoyed in the same casual tone. Though brief, her account speaks to how normalized traumatic encounters had become for her. In addition to the harmful impulses she already displayed in harassing Sherry, she'd also experienced a removal of positive stimuli at work. With increasing complaints about her day-to-day -day shifts and a significant rise in violent crimes that year, Stephanie's job stopped providing her satisfaction. These are both key determinants of deviance, according to Agnew's general strain theory. Combined, they foster anger and frustration, and Stephanie festered in a cocktail that continued high levels of both. On February 24, 1986, Stephanie could no longer contain her wrath. 
That morning, John and Sherry woke up just before 7 a.m. Usually, Sherry was up and out the door, but on this day, she stayed in bed as John got ready for work. She'd called in sick to work, despite a conflict resolution class she was scheduled to teach at the hospital. Just before John left, around 7.15 a.m., Sherry rolled over and asked him to call her later that morning. He agreed with one final glance to his half-asleep wife. It was the last time he would see her alive. At 10 a.m., John called Sherry, but she didn't answer. He tried her office phone, but Sherry's secretary answered. She hadn't seen Sherry come in that morning. The day wore on, and John dialed Sherry again that afternoon. Unable to reach her yet again, he assumed his wife was merely busy. And Sherry was busy, fighting for her life. While no one but Stephanie Lazarus truly knows what happened that day, we're able to make some strong inferences based on the crime scene. The morning of February 24th, Stephanie Lazarus arrived at Sherry and John's apartment. Since the house alarm wasn't on and the front door had been left unlocked, Stephanie entered unnoticed. She climbed up the stairs from the living room to the dining room and aimed her gun at Sherry Rasmussen. Then without further contemplation, Stephanie shot twice. But the bullets missed Sherry and hit the sliding glass door behind her, which shattered. Sherry screamed. Terrified, Sherry ran down the stairs to the living room, trying to reach the panic button on the security panel of her new alarm system. But Stephanie got to the panic button before Sherry, blocking her way. In defense, Sherry pulled Stephanie into a headlock, wrestling Stephanie's gun away from her. To break free, Stephanie bit Sherry on the inside of her left forearm, picked up a heavy gray ceramic vase from the living room shelf, and chucked it at Sherry's head. Momentarily dazed by the blunt force, Sherry fell to the ground. Then Stephanie fired the fatal shot. It went through Sherry's chest, causing rapid internal bleeding that would have given Sherry only minutes to live. But Stephanie wasn't done. She grabbed a nearby blanket, placed it on Sherry's chest to muffle sound, and fired twice more. Then Stephanie got to work staging a different crime. She knocked over furniture, pulled out drawers, and stacked a VCR and CD player near the entrance, crafting the scene of a robbery gone wrong. But Stephanie only stole two things after the murder. The first was Sherry's BMW, which she drove away in. The second was John and Sherry's marriage license. Hours later, shortly after 6 p.m., John returned to find his wife laying among fallen furniture and the pieces of a shattered vase. He initially thought his wife was sleeping, but when he felt her cold calf and saw her severely bruised face, he realized his wife had been murdered. Flooded with dread, he ran to the living room phone and dialed 911. John paced for nearly 15 minutes, waiting anxiously for the paramedics to arrive. During that time, unable to handle the sight of his battered wife, he placed a nearby washcloth over her face. When the LAPD arrived on the scene, 
they saw the electronics piled near the door and arrived at the exact conclusion Stephanie hoped they would. Their first impression was that the murder was a robbery gone wrong. Stephanie would still have to evade scrutiny in the months of investigation that followed. But being a cop gave her an inside advantage that would keep her from thorough investigation. Coming up, Stephanie carries out the perfect cover-up. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On the evening of February 24th, 1986, Lead Detective Lyle Mayer walked around the living room of John Rutten and Sherry Rasmussen's Van Nuys apartment. Sherry's body lay in the middle of the floor, bloody and bruised. Lyle took in all the details of the crime scene, the disheveled furniture and the abandoned electronics piled near the door. Immediately, he proposed two theories— The first, that two thieves had broken in and, startled by Sherry, killed her. The second, that John Rutten had murdered his own wife. But after only one hour speaking to the widowed John Rutten, Lyle tossed his second hypothesis out the window. He confided in John that he believed Sherry was the victim of a failed robbery. But there are a few key details that don't fit with Lyle's theory. First, if the burglar simply shot and killed Sherry out of surprise, why did she have bruises on her face? It seemed someone had struck her, not defensively, but with malice. Second, the robbers hadn't taken anything of value other than the BMW, and even that explanation fell apart. Just one week after the murder, police found Sherry's car parked on a nearby street with the keys left inside. Still, Detective Lyle continued to dismiss the strange details that called his theory into question. In this way, Lyle exhibited confirmation bias. Research psychologist Dr. Raymond S. Nickerson explains that confirmation bias occurs when a person selectively gathers or gives undue weight to evidence that supports one's position, while neglecting to gather or discounting evidence that would tell against it. Furthermore, someone operating under confirmation bias seeks facts that support an existing or preferred hypothesis, and John Rutten didn't do much to sway Lyle from his perception. On February 24, 1986, just three hours after John discovered his wife's body, Lyle Mayer escorted him into an interview room at the Van Nuys police station. Lyle turned on his tape recorder and shuffled through his papers, then proceeded to question John about the days and hours that led up to Sherry's death. At one point, Lyle asked about the couple's former partners. She's not having any problems with an ex-boyfriend or you with an ex-girlfriend? Without hesitation, John replied, no. His failure to mention Stephanie's odd January visits may have ultimately damned the first investigation. 
it didn't help that Lyle's research seemed to only pursue a single theory. Over the next few weeks, Lyle interviewed Sherry's neighbors, relatives, and companions. According to Lyle, there were no relevant suspects. But one person wasn't so convinced, Sherry's father, Nels Rasmussen. In the weeks leading up to his daughter's murder, Sherry had told her father, Nels, about Stephanie's unwelcome visits. He'd heard the fear in her voice, and now she was dead. But because it seemed that Sherry never told her father Stephanie's name, all he could tell Lyle was that there was an LAPD officer who had wanted to be with John. That was a pretty vague tip. For Lyle to accuse one of his fellow officers of murder, he needed more than a loose hunch to go on. But even if Lyle had seriously investigated Stephanie, it's unclear what he would have found because Stephanie had already taken necessary measures to cover her tracks. For one, she'd parked Sherry's stolen BMW streets away from the crime scene, making sure to leave no fingerprints. Then Stephanie got rid of another key piece of evidence, the gun she used to shoot Sherry. Two weeks after the murder, Stephanie claimed that her off-duty firearm was stolen, but she chose to file the report with the Santa Monica Police Department instead of the Devonshire Police Station, where she was an officer. Though Santa Monica is typically considered part of Los Angeles, it falls under Santa Monica city jurisdiction, making the report that much harder for Sherry's murder detectives in LA County to find. On the afternoon of Sunday, March 9, 1986, Stephanie walked into the Santa Monica station and approached the community service officer on duty. She explained that she had left her 1981 Toyota Tercel parked on the street in Santa Monica, only to return an hour later to find her gym bag had been stolen, as well as belongings from her glove box. On the reported list of missing items were miscellaneous clothing items, cassette tapes, and most notably, her Smith & Wesson five-shot 38 caliber revolver. Had investigators looked into the missing firearm, they would have found that the bullets lodged in Sherry Rasmussen's chest matched those made for Stephanie's stolen gun. But there's no confirmation that anyone at the Santa Monica station even went outside to confirm Stephanie's car had been broken into that day. There was no report of a forensic examination either, which is typically conducted in cases of theft. It seemed that because Stephanie belonged to the LAPD, no one questioned her story in the slightest. Stephanie could have stopped there, but by the looks of it, she didn't. After ridding herself of Sherry's car and the murder weapon, Stephanie may have pursued Sherry's chrono or chronological log. This formal file of investigative events is arguably the most important document in any homicide case. Sherry's ran well over 100 pages long and included every interview, piece of evidence, and relevant discovery from the moment Sherry was found. Perhaps to get her hands on it, Stephanie would need to work at the Van Nuys police station. In the years that followed, Stephanie was transferred to Van Nuys, and once that happened, Stephanie enjoyed unrestricted access to Sherry's chrono book. During that time, 
the original written part of the log mysteriously disappeared. The only remaining part of it was the typed transcription, and within those pages, despite Stephanie's multiple visits to Sherry's home and her long history with John, Stephanie's name appeared only once. It read, John Rutten called, verified Stephanie Lazarus, police officer, was a former girlfriend. Beyond that brief suggestion of Sherry's real killer, Detective Lyle Mayer, or whoever else contributed to these reports, made no other mention of Stephanie in the chrono. Instead, the case file focused on his robbery-gone-wrong theory. He brought attention to other crimes committed in the area, like a theft in Sherry's neighborhood a month and a half after her murder. At a condominium less than a mile away from where Sherry had lived, resident Lisa Rivali watched, paralyzed by fear, as two Hispanic males ran from her home. One carried stolen goods, and the other threatened her with a gun. For Lyle, Lisa's encounter was enough to believe she and Sherry were victims of the same invaders. The only difference was that Lisa had lived to tell the tale. But the Rasmussens weren't so convinced. So eight months after their daughter's death, in October of 1986, the Rasmussens offered a $10,000 reward for tips on Sherry's murderers. Along with it, police included Lyle's descriptions of Sherry's suspected assailants, two Latino men whose heights were 5'4 and 5'6 respectively. Nothing came of it. The lack of progress in the first year of investigation frustrated Nels Rasmussen. A conservative dentist from Arizona, Nels was not the type of person to entertain hysterical emotional reasoning, but he clung to the belief that Sherry was killed by John's spurned lover. Nels also thought Lyle, or another cop, had tampered with information to protect Sherry's real killer, a fellow police officer. Whenever he repeated these suggestions to LAPD during numerous follow-up calls on Sherry's case, they scoffed at him. As far as they were concerned, Nels was a man with good reason to make up theories, writing them off as desperate conspiracies. One officer even told Nels, you watch too much television. So dismissed, the relevant lead Nels had about John's ex-girlfriend soon sunk beneath layers of time and ignorance, like a shiny memento in a murky lake. Two years after Sherry's death, there remained more questions than answers. LAPD's detectives accepted Lyle's hypothesis on what had happened, and the case fell cold. Even John Rutten was ready to move on with his life. And one of the ways he planned to do that was by taking a trip to Hawaii with Stephanie. In 1989, John called up Lyle Mayer to confirm that Stephanie had nothing to do with Sherry's murder. Though Lyle insisted Stephanie was innocent, it is interesting that the possibility of Stephanie's guilt stuck with John all that time. After all, he'd so readily claimed that he and Sherry never had any exes of note during his initial interrogation. His uncertainty about that three years later suggests that John had his own concerns about Stephanie that he'd never voiced. 
But they evidently didn't bother him that much because Lyle's assurance was enough for John to agree to meet Stephanie in Hawaii. The two spent their tropical getaway scuba diving in blue waters. For a moment, Stephanie's world felt right. She'd finally won John back, regardless of the cost. During the trip, as John later recalled, Stephanie never asked him about Sherry's death. Both seemed to want to keep the past where they felt it belonged, behind them. In fact, he seemed to want to forget that part of his life. John and Stephanie had sex multiple times after returning from Hawaii, just as they once had shared romantic evenings at John's first post-college apartment, the two experienced intimacy once more. But they never did re-enter a relationship. This may have been a result of the skeletons that both had in their closets. Being together as the friends they once were was not possible. Life had changed them forever. In the years following their trip, the heat between them fizzled out. Both of them got married to other people and built lives apart from one another. In 1991, Lyle Mayer decided to retire from the police force, further freezing Sherry's cold case. For the next decade and a half, John, Sherry's family, and the LAPD sat in the dark about what exactly happened on February 24, 1986. But throughout this time, DNA technology underwent rapid developments, and in 2001, the LAPD created the Cold Case Homicide Unit to search for DNA evidence in unsolved murder files. This single spark ignited a fire that would eventually lead to one of the most shocking arrests in LAPD history. Coming up, frozen DNA evidence prompts a top-secret investigation. Now, back to the story. Almost 20 years after Sherry Rasmussen's murder, Stephanie Lazarus had climbed up the ranks of LAPD, becoming a detective in her own right. She'd moved on with her life, and no one seemed to suspect she'd murdered John Rutten's wife so many years ago. So when the police force opened a cold case unit to solve decades-old crimes with DNA technology, Stephanie didn't sweat it. She truly believed she'd gotten away with murder. But new scientific capabilities meant that LAPD was able to examine one piece of evidence they hadn't before. The saliva from the bite mark on Sherry's left arm. But before LAPD's investigators could test the sample, they needed to find it. When DNA analyst Jennifer Francis reviewed the case file in 2004, she noticed that the DNA sample wasn't included in the list of evidence. A detective had apparently signed out the sample from the coroner's office in October 1993. And around the same time, Sherry's father, Nels, started offering to pay for his own lab tests on the samples. But Nels never got access to the sample either. Jennifer decided to contact the coroner's office and confirm for herself that it was no longer there, as Sherry's file had noted. Upon arrival, she spoke with a worker, requesting that they go to the freezers in search of the lost bite mark swab. But the worker resisted her request, only obliging after Jennifer's intense pestering. 
the worker searched for hours, unsuccessful. Then, finally, in the back of one freezer, the worker found a manila envelope. Written on it, Rasmussen. Jennifer was elated to see that the sample was still intact. Inside, a glass tube contained two DNA swabs. They'd sat untouched at the back of the fridge for over 18 years. Pleased with her finding, Jennifer ran the cells from the swabs through a DNA typing program, and the results came back. But they proved unfruitful. They did not match with anyone in the DNA database. The evidence was resealed and placed back on a freezer shelf, but Jennifer's efforts weren't completely in vain. They revealed an important discovery. According to the DNA, whoever bit Sherry was a woman. With this new information, Jennifer posited that perhaps Sherry Rasmussen wasn't the victim of a robbery gone wrong after all. Instead, maybe a scorned ex-girlfriend on the wrong side of a love triangle had killed Sherry in cold blood. But the cold case investigator at the time denied her theory. He insisted that the failed robbery had probably just been carried out not by two males, but one male and one female. So for four years, the case stalled. But in 2009, LAPD's detective Jim Nuttall happened upon the case file. Intrigued by its mystery, he got to work, wrangling in a small team of detectives to help. Nuttall flipped through the pages from the two-decade-old chrono over and over again, hoping to find a detail that shed some light on what happened February 24, 1986. Nuttall and his team thought they'd hit a dead end, but then a detail in one of the crime scene photos struck them. A smudge of Sherry's blood on top of the CD player left near the door. This meant that the stereo had been moved after Sherry was murdered. If Sherry's killers were thieves, they likely would have moved the items before being surprised by Sherry and killing her in their surprise. In that moment, Van Nuys detectives realized Sherry's untimely death was not the result of a robbery gone wrong. The female assailant hadn't come for valuables. She'd infiltrated Sherry's house that day to kill her. Then another thing stood out to the detectives. The failed theft had been set up convincingly enough to sway Detective Lyle Mayer's perspective back in 1986. This meant that whoever committed the crime not only had it out for Sherry, but also had extensive knowledge of criminal investigations. By the way things had been staged, the culprit would have to be someone who knew what failed robberies looked like. As the detectives looked into potential suspects, they scoured the chrono for female names. Then, Detective Jim Nuttall stumbled on an unexpected lead. A note in the chrono from 1987 confirmed that police officer Stephanie Lazarus was John Rutten's former girlfriend. Curious, the detectives searched her name in the LAPD database. In moments, they discovered that Stephanie Lazarus was, in fact, still on the force. And even more chillingly, she was working at the same station they were. 
In search of answers, Detective Jim Nuttall reached out to John Rutten, who revealed that Sherry's father, Nels, had always suspected Stephanie was the culprit. To keep the investigation as far from Stephanie's ears as possible, they referred to her only as number five, so as not to arouse suspicion. While their basic background check yielded a squeaky clean history, detectives did find it notable that her quick temper had allegedly won her the nickname Spazarus by fellow officers. With a new understanding of the worrying link between Stephanie Lazarus and Sherry Rasmussen, Jim Nuttall decided it was time to get Stephanie's DNA to compare to the bite mark sample. To do this, he mobilized a special surveillance team to follow Stephanie around. Days after the team was dispatched, they followed her into a Costco parking lot and watched as she tossed an empty cup of Coke into a trash can. As soon as Stephanie turned away, detectives rushed to the garbage and retrieved her discarded cup. They sent the straw from it to a lab for testing, then waited intently for a whole month. Lo and behold, when the results came in, they indicated that the DNA from Stephanie's straw was an exact match to the bite mark on Sherry's arm. At that point, there would be no further sleuthing. The detectives had substantial evidence for an arrest on their hands, but getting her into custody wouldn't be so easy. They'd have to disarm her first. Since Stephanie was an officer, she always had a gun on her, and they couldn't just ask her to surrender it point blank. So the detectives devised a plan. On Friday, June 5th, 2009, 49-year-old Stephanie Lazarus arrived for a typical day of work at the Parker Center station. Luckily, this station is connected to a downstairs detention center where criminals are held. So Detective Dan Yaramillo lied to Stephanie that he had a suspect waiting there for an interrogation. To sweeten the trap, he explained that he needed her expertise. The man in question had valuable insights on an art theft case, Stephanie's specialty. So she eagerly obliged and joined him as they headed below ground for what Stephanie thought would be an interesting interrogation. Of course, she had no idea at the time that she was the one who would be questioned. The two walked side by side toward the security checkpoint where all officers are required to surrender their firearms. And just as Detective Yaramillo had planned, Stephanie handed over her gun. Once unarmed, Stephanie stepped into an interrogation room. As the door closed behind her, officers gathered on the other side primed to place an arrest. The questioning detectives, Daniel Yaramillo and Greg Stearns, acted casually and kept conversation light as Stephanie pried for information on why she was there. After all, no one had debriefed her on what she should be asking. But on that day in June 2009, it was time for Stephanie to cough up answers because she was the suspect in question. As soon as she was asked about John Rutten, Stephanie's breathing picked up. She furrowed her brows and crossed her arms, defensive. But more damning than Stephanie's fidgety behaviors were her answers to their questions. 
When they asked her how long she had dated John Rutten, Stephanie brought in needless details about her college years, John's family, and even her own husband. It was all completely unrelated to the original question. She did the same thing when the detectives mentioned the handgun she'd reported as stolen back in 1986, just two weeks after Sherry's murder. This behavior is known as obfuscation. Dr. Jack Schaefer, a retired FBI special agent with a specialization in deception, has explained that liars will often answer simple questions with roundabout answers. This is a form of obfuscation. As Dr. Schaefer notes, liars provide evasive answers and ambiguous responses to avoid the truth. Rather than simply answering how many years she knew John Rutten for, Stephanie divulged details of her undergraduate experience and even her marriage to her husband, veering away from the original question that was asked. Eventually, Stephanie had had enough. She stood up from the table, refusing to continue without a lawyer. But when she left the room, she was arrested and taken into custody. After 23 years, Sherry Rasmussen's murderer was finally put in handcuffs. On Thursday, March 8, 2012, a jury of eight women and four men found Stephanie guilty for the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. She was sentenced to 27 years in prison with the possibility of parole in 2025. Stephanie showed no emotion when the judge read her sentence. She only smiled at her family members in the gallery as she was led out of the courtroom. For Sherry's family, the sentence felt like justice overdue. Though they'll never have their bright daughter back, they can rest a little easier knowing the perpetrator isn't fully armed, walking free through the city of angels. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Stephanie Lazarus, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Lazarus Files, a cold case investigation by Matthew McGough, quite conducive to our research. Videos of her intriguing interrogation can also be found on YouTube. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 